Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. The show you are about to hear was recorded on the Monday after the Mugello MotoGP race. The reason for this special introduction is because we talk in the show, we talk about uh, Jorge Lorenzo going to Yamaha. Now, that was what we believed was true at the time, so you can imagine how shocked we were on Tuesday morning to find out that uh, Danny Pedrosa had left uh, Repsol Honda and that uh, Jorge Lorenzo has signed a contract to replace Pedrosa at Repsol Honda. Now, some of the stuff that we talked about is still valid, um, especially the stuff about um, the Sepang International Circuit. There is still going to be a factory Yamaha available in the Sepang International Circuit team. Uh, certainly, Juan Mir is going to go to Suzuki. Danilo Petrucci will take Lorenzo's place in uh, in Ducati. Andrea Iannone looks set to go to the factory Aprilia seat, uh, but we shall have to wait and see exactly what happens later on. Now, what we really need is to have a special silly season show, which we hope to record later this week so here's the show hope you enjoy it uh, hello and welcome to another episode of the paddock pass podcast the tuscany edition uh i am sat here um on a balcony overlooking this uh, the fine city of florence um the view is rather spectacular uh, and working really well on radio um i am sat here with uh, two fine young gentlemen neil morrison of course paddock pass regular and moto uh, motor two and motor three commenter how are you neil i'm good david yeah a little bit tired after a bit of a crazy weekend but uh, doing well we are also lucky uh, to have adam wheeler on the podcast once again uh, as a guest uh, welcome uh, adam uh, editor of on track off road very very fine publication we're the best contributors uh, with some uh, dodgy fellows who occasionally right for you this is true um right it's we're here to talk about the italian round of moto gp the italian grand prix at mugello in spectacular setting for a fascinating race so much to talk about uh obviously we have to start off i think with uh, jorge lorenzo because you know they ducati he was signed by ducati to win races and to win championships the 23 races he could do neither uh, and on his 24th attempt, he finally does it. Kicked off the uh, race, it looked like being Jerez or Lamar all over again, where he gets into the lead, holds everyone up, and then everyone gets past him, and then, you know, the race is done. He seemed to talk a lot about this new fuel tank he had been asking for. Um, you know, he changed his position on the bike, didn't put, didn't take as much physical effort for him to ride. Um it's hard to say how much of a bearing that really had, particularly here at Mugello, where, you know, the Ducatis were, again, the fastest through the speed traps. Um, Andrea De Vizioso quite clearly in the podium. I don't think anybody was disputing that. I mean, he was quite close to his victory last year. Um, so, you know, it, Lorenzo had made a step, but was it that vast? Um, yeah, it's up, to, up for debate. I mean, Lorenzo came into the, the race weekend um, making some veiled criticism and snipes at uh, the upper echelons of uh, Ducati management. Um, Claudio Domenicali, the CEO, um, had made comments hinting that uh, Lorenzo was a, you know, a very, very fine rider. But uh, Lorenzo put that, uh, put him in his place basically on Thursday saying, you know, I'm not just a fine rider, I'm a five-time world champion or something to that effect. And you rather feel that uh, he came to M Mugello with an, a point to prove, um, you know, probably as motivated as, as he's ever been to really show his worth. And, yeah, and worth also pointing out that, that, that Mugello really is uh, a Lorenzo track. I mean, he's, he had, before the weekend, already won five times. True, yeah, it is. But, I mean, Le Mans is also a Lorenzo track, and he was uh, comprehensively outshone by Danilo Petrucci and Jack Miller there, like, you know, Ducati's two satellite riders. So I agree with Adam. Whenever the race started, I thought this was going to be another... Um, Lorenzo, you know, Ducati performance where he sort of holds up the group and everyone, the big train forms behind them and they eventually get by him and he finishes something like 7th or 8th, much like uh, the race here last year. But um, I think his ability to manage the front end of the bike and the front tyre was really critical. Um, all the MotoGP riders were saying that it was probably the most critical aspect of the race yesterday, managing that to a degree. And Lorenzo went with the medium option, which was the, the softest option that any rider ran in the race and uh, his ability to manage that I think was sensational absolutely fantastic and it drew praise from even uh, Andrea De Vizioso, who you have to say judging by his uh, facial expression on the podium isn't uh, Lorenzo's biggest fan <laughs> well here's a question for you what about you know the mentality the, the mental side of it because 
Um, you know, something we might get onto a little bit later with the city season rumors. Um, you know, Jorge Lorenzo is being firmly identified as a rider that's returning to the Yamaha next year. I mean, if this guy's got his future clear in his head, maybe some of that pressure of that vast contract, where, where he's going to go, that expectation has kind of cleared a little bit. He's in a perfect kind of position to sort of stick two fingers up and sit and say, you know, listen, guys, I, you know, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to attack it this weekend. You know, you can't, you can't point any more fingers at me. Yeah, but I, I think there's a little more to it. That there's certainly, definitely something uh, in there. But the, the the fact is that he's been asking, he's been saying this bike is really difficult or really, especially tiring to ride, physically demanding to ride. He's been asking for this uh, for this change apparently since Thailand. Um, he said afterwards, um, they finally bought it. I mean, I was in pit lane, so I got to, you know to get a good look at it. And really, the Ducati, uh, the, the back of the Ducati fuel tank is very, very narrow. And because what they, you know, people want to be able to hang off it. And really what it did is it turned it in, you know, quite wide, quite round. Um, uh, it was obvious that, you know, it, it just made it a lot easier for Lorenzo to keep it, to hold his body weight up on his sort of between his thighs rather than just with his, uh, with, with his arms and shoulders. Uh, and this is a very different track to Le Mans as well. It's worth, worth pointing out. Yes, Lorenzo has always been strong at Le Mans, but Le Mans is totally stop and go where this one just really, really flows all of the time. I mean, it was a fairly dramatic weekend for Ducati. I mean, Michele Piro's huge crash uh, on Friday, and then you know Andrea De Vizioso also blowing an engine quite spectacularly. It was, uh, you know, it's far from straightforward for them, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, and there was a point in the race where it looked like uh, a one-two-three was on on the cards. Uh, all Ducati podium at one point. There were Ducatis in each of the three um, podium places with Petrucci uh, getting ahead of Rossi, but eventually his race went a bit awry, and he could finish no higher than I think seventh. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was certainly interesting watching Lorenzo in the park for me after the race finished, and obviously it was a massive outpouring of emotion and um, you know a kind of a, a vindication of of his move. You know, uh, I think only five other riders in the MotoGP four-stroke era since 2002 have you know won races with two different constructors, and it was quite interesting to see Domenicali standing among all of Ducati management. Uh, yeah, being completely blanked. You know, even though he was smiling and you know reaching out to kind of congratulate Lorenzo. Um, yeah, Lorenzo was just completely ignoring him. So after the race, he said he made some more commented, or, sorry, pointed comments to the, the Spanish press. Um, you know, Delinia, Domenicali, Tardozzi, they believed in me, but I feel that someone a little higher up didn't do that. And uh, yeah, he was, uh, well, a little bit, um, he seemed a little bit downbeat that he wasn't going to have the chance to continue this and see whether he could fight for the championship because the first five races have been such a, such a disaster that I think any talk of the title now for 2018 is, is long gone. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see because we've got a, basically a string of Lorenzo tracks coming up. Um, uh, some of his good... Definitely not Aston. Ba uh, Barcelona, the next two after that, not so much. But the, the, you know, there are plenty of places. You know, Aragon, he's been, he's been strong. Aragon... Yeah, exactly. The second half of the season, there's a few tracks where uh, where he could he could perform if uh, if conditions are right. Well, I mean, you picked up a moment ago, Neil. Post race reactions. I mean, there was obviously a lot of emotion flowing, a lot of kind of you know elation, and but you know it's interesting that there were different signals coming out of Ducati. I mean, I think Gigi Dalinga was quoted as saying, you know, it's not quite over yet, whereas uh, Lorenzo was saying, you know, he's not going to be riding that motorcycle for the next two years. So it's um. It's a little clear, unclear, I should say, as to how that kind of future is going to go in official terms anyway, even if most people seem to accept the fact that Lorenzo is going to do a Rossi and head back to Yamaha. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was, especially on Italian uh, Italian TV, I think they uh, interviewed uh, Claudio Domenicali first and he said, uh, 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 saying, oh, you journalists are always making up rumours about people uh, leaving, nothing's decided, everything is still open, there's still a hope for us. And then 10 minutes later, Lorenzo was interviewed and says, no, 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 I'm gone, this is it. The, the, it's over, it's too late now. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, us bloody journalists making up rumours when Domenicali said last week that Dovizioso needs a more stable uh, <laughs> man beside him in the garage next year that can bring the team together. Yes, yes, it was uh, it was payback. It, it was, and it was classic. It was really classic. Uh, uh, it was a classic Lorenzo win as well because, uh, like you say, I mean, you know, he led for the first few laps and he, he looked like he was just holding everyone up. But in fact, what was happening was um, everyone was struggling to keep up with him because he kept that same place it, from start to finish. It, I mean, it was impressive. Low forty eights all race long, whereas others, after I think what uh, eight nine laps. 
uh, went from sort of low 48s to low 49s. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you look at the first 16, 17 laps on the lap analysis, it is vintage Jorge Lorenzo from 2015, just that consistency, that uh, metronomic. Yeah, the different lap differences measured in thousandths, not, yeah. not, not tenths. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a quick pace. We, 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 I guess we saw that whenever Marquez crashed out in, I think, the third lap. Um, we saw some of the other guys, like Jack Miller, who we expected to be fighting for the podium, crash out. And honestly, I thought once uh, Davizioso um, navigated his way through the chasing pack, he was going to be Lorenzo's biggest challenger and could possibly go on to win. But, um, yeah, Davizioso really destroyed his uh, rear tyre trying to maintain some sort of pace. The gap hovered around two seconds for most of the race. And then, uh, yeah, Davizioso was finished, I think, in the last three laps. I think more of a credit to Lorenzo as well is that several of his, probably his biggest challengers said they weren't in a position to win. I mean, somebody asked Mark Marquez yesterday, you know, if he felt he could have won that race and he was quite clear that he felt he didn't have the pace for Lorenzo. Yeah, and it was, um, you know, we'll come on to Valentino Rossi later, but, you know, Valentino Rossi taking third and... Uh, the fact that he took third, that had nothing to do with the Yamaha, that had everything to do with, you know, it being Mugello, it being Valentino Rossi, he overrode that, rode that bike yeah. at the at the end. He rode with his, I think he said, he rode with his heart at the end, uh, the, the last few laps, rather than with the bike. I think some of his team were saying that, you know, the bike was good enough for fourth place. Yeah. So, you know, and then making that pole position lap on Saturday was was the was the difference of the rider. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it's a, it is a remarkable, uh, a remarkable place. Yeah, and just to go back to Lorenzo, I think it's quite interesting that um, although we didn't see them dueling on track, that was pretty much a straight Lorenzo de Vizioso fight. And I, I'm trying to struggle. I think other than Aragon last year, that is the only time that Lorenzo has comprehensively outshone Dovi. I mean, I think he's he's beat him on occasions. But you could say Valencia 2017, sure, but could, uh, that might be a slightly controversial slightly, uh, yeah, you point. Could, you could maybe make a point for Sepang, um, you know, when he was asked to move over yeah. um, because the championship was hanging on it, whether it would go to Valencia or not, depended on whether Davizioso won that race. Um, but again, there were it wasn't clear. You know, Davizioso was with Lorenzo throughout yeah. Valencia. He was shadowing him all the way through that Sepang race whereas yesterday he was head and shoulders above above him and I think um, Davizioso's reaction after the race showed that you know because he had no answer for for his teammate and that was on his track on his bike and yeah. um, there was maybe a slight concern there you suspected from the Italian that oh, this could be you know this does seem to be maybe a, a seat not a seat change I don't expect to go on regularly, but definitely Lorenzo is a different. A, a, seems a, a to be worrying a different, development. Yeah, it seems to be a different prospect now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, also, uh, I think, uh, I mean, Dovizioso also made a rod for his own back to a certain extent by qualifying in seventh, and so uh, he, he putting himself in a, in a difficult position. But you know, he said after qualifying, I've just spent all weekend working for the race, which is what got him so far last year. Exactly, and I was at the there was a private test at Montmelo between Le Mans and Mugello. And um, the Yamahas were quick, um, but Lorenzo was really fast and really consistent. Um, I was watching trackside, and he looked really good. And I think he was third or fourth fastest overall. He had a fourth place there last year. Um, as you mentioned, David, it's, it's a Lorenzo track, and it's without that stupid chicane at the end of the yeah. at the end of the circuit now. So, yeah, because that that second half, that's all that is. I mean, you know, that's Lorenzo territory. It's just flow, flow, flow. Yeah. So it's going to be really interesting to see if he can continue this form uh, into into Montmelo. And, uh, well, yeah, I think uh, good times lie ahead for, for the Mallorcan. Yeah, so what happens at Ducati now that, I mean, you know, so Lorenzo wins, Lorenzo says he's leaving, and we'll talk about what what's, uh, what he might be doing later on. But uh, what, does this, what does this mean for Ducati? Well, Casey Stoner was talking a little bit about it yesterday. Um, he gave a very glowing kind of reference towards Daniela Petrucci, um, whereas I think, you know, when we attended the debriefs yesterday, Pramac were being very kind of protective of their riders, particularly Jack Miller, who's also, you know, penciled in for that other, other saddle, uh, next to Dobby. So it's, um, it's got to still be between those two, even though they, it seems that Miller is very firmly fixed inside Pramac for another season. Um, which I think is understandable. Petrucci's been there, what, three years now? Four, Four years. So, Four years, I yeah, I mean, if he doesn't move up onto a factory supported bike, because he is on good equipment, then, you know, it's hard to imagine who else they could take. Yeah, and also, you know, for, for Ducati to have two Italian riders, both capable of uh, of uh, scoring some strong results, 
that would be an absolute dream for DK. Yeah, and I think if you look at Jack Miller's performances this year on a year-old machine, he's going to be on a GP19, whether he's in the factory squad or the Primax squad next year, you know, no matter what. Um, we were speaking on Saturday, Dave. I mean, yes, Jack didn't have a good race. He crashed out. I think it was his first crash in nine races um, or his first non-score in nine races, but he is improving into a really fine MotoGP rider. Yeah. And I think another year of experience um, put him on the same spec of bike as the factory guys and you could you could see a guy that is regularly challenging for podiums and maybe the occasional win as well so you know I think um, yeah there would be um, you know with Petrucci in there alongside Davizioso Miller in the, in the satellite squad I think you'd have a pretty potent three-pronged attack there and uh, Peko Banyaya and seeing what Peko Banyaya can do when he uh, when he moves up yeah look what he did yesterday with one arm yeah yeah yeah, yeah one yeah. working arm I should say yeah <laughs> Uh, exactly. Um, we should probably move on to Mark Marquez, uh, because speaking of Danilo Petrucci, um, uh, he didn't have much of a, he didn't have a great race, uh, uh, Marquez. Came through, had a, got, got a fantastic start, came through, but then outbreaked himself into turn two, which put him in position to um, uh, nudge Danilo Petrucci through, uh, through, uh, or through turn two. Sorry, he ran wider at turn one, which put him in the wrong place to start knocking. Uh, uh, the torpedo. It, it wasn't a torpedo. I think, I think if it had been Danny Pedrosa, everyone would go. Well, that's a little bit un, uh, unusual for for Danny. But yeah, I suppose racing in a uh, racing incident. But it, of course, it wasn't Danny Pedrosa. It was Mark Marquez. Uh, it didn't make him a big favourite with the um, with the Italian fans. But then he wasn't already wasn't a, a really big favourite with the Italian fans. There was quite a lot of um, there was quite a strong reaction when he bumped into. Um, uh, when he bumped into Petrucci at turn two, and then there was an even stronger reaction when uh, he finally ended up falling off. But it, it took him a very, very long time to fall off, simply because he tried to save the uh, save a massive uh, front end slide for about what thirty eight meters, I think they said in the end. I don't know. I think you know Cal Crutchlow said that you know Mugello is one of the the best places in the world to ride a motorcycle. But I think for Mark Marquez, each year coming around, it must be also be one of the most claustrophobic places because uh, it was already on Friday where he popped up on the TV screen and a crowd that was actually pretty sparse, I thought, on Friday and even on Saturday to a degree were already booing and hollering. And there, was, there, was, there was a I, bit of a I was the, in pit lane. cauldron effect. Yeah, definitely. I was in pit lane and there was some... Um, uh, I was looking at the grandstands and you could you could tell whenever um, Mark Marquez came on screen so they'd be booing. And there was one Marquez fan in the amidst all of these Rossi fans who would stand up every time and wave his Marquez flag and he was like the bravest <laughs> man at, 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 at Mugelli. It was... Uh, it was a tin hat and Kevlar? No, 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 no. He was completely, he was completely unprotected. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was truly, it was truly astonishing. But yes, it was, um, uh, the, the mood was very, very ugly towards uh, Marcus. There was the incident with the, uh, uh, somewhere out on one of the campsites, uh, someone had made a little grave with Mark Marcus's name and then the, the date of the yeah, Italian yeah. Grand Prix. It was, um, I mean, it's all, it's all overblown. I mean, I think if you're, if you're a fan of, say, football, for example, um, then you know that you, you go to see a match and the best player from the opposing team usually gets pelters, um, you know, for some reason or another. There's, there's usually a lot of kind of abuse and jeering and whatever to try and distract a, you know, a player. So I think there is a, an element of that. There's some kind of theatricality, but there's also a little bit of a malicious side. Yeah. Um, obviously, as Mark said in his debrief yesterday, born out of circumstances that have happened over the last couple of years. Um, you know, he said the incident, the jeering on Friday came amidst the, the silence for or the, the, the period where people were concerned after Michele Piro and his large, his big crash. So, you know, it was, was pretty, pretty dark and ugly there. Um, and then just uh, the volume of cheering when Mark slid out um, and ultimately went back to the back of the field and said he almost crashed 10 times was, uh, you know, trying to come back through was, you know, also pretty worrying. But then I don't think you really necessarily see that anywhere apart from Mugello, which, you know, is that huge yellow sign in the grandstand said yesterday, welcome to Rossi's house. Yeah, I agree with you to an extent. And I think you'd also make a case for Mizano. I remember last year at Mizano, Marquez crashed out of morning warm-up, I think, at the first chicane there. And, you know, the, the um, that's just in front of the Rossi grandstand. And they all stood up and cheered. I remember there was a camera shot of him being taken back to the, the pits on the back of a scooter and he was blowing kisses to the fans, you know, <laughs> theatrically, which I thought was a pretty good reaction. And then, of course... He went out and absolutely smashed the race and, uh, you know, points to Daniel Petrucci on the last lap. And I remember thinking, you know, he didn't need to do that at that point because it was a very risky tactic and the, the championship was very, very finely poised. 
and he risked it all in that last lap and did something quite incredible. And I thought, you know, isn't that just a little extra spark that, that caused him to do that, that he could beat the Italian rider at home and, and you know, send the place quiet. Um, and I was wondering yesterday, was there something similar in that? Because all weekend long, as Adam said, he had been receiving peltos. Um, and on Saturday, he said that the bike setup wasn't exactly right. This was maybe going to have to be a race where he conserved. Um, he didn't attack. It was just about managing the points gap and some things like that. And then we saw him attacking in the race completely. And you just wonder, is a little part of that, the fact that his bike, his back was slightly up from just the, the reaction to the crowd that he was, you know, all getting all weekend. You know, he, he wanted to go out there and, and stick it to them, essentially. It, uh, perhaps, but also uh, uh, it was a little bit like Austin. Remember Austin where he said he had so much abuse from uh, what happened in Argentina that he just wanted to get out in front, uh, get away. And, uh, the, I mean, the, 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 the safest way, way for him to win is to run away on his own so uh, perhaps that was also a, a thought process going uh, uh, going through his mind you know if you're in front of people then you can't run into them don't underestimate the fact that yeah, he was using two hard tyres you know and I think he took a gamble on that I mean maybe he saw Lorenzo trying to make a little bit of a break in the beginning and wanted to go as well um, you know and ultimately the consequence of that is, 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 as we said this morning, it's fantastic for the championship. I mean, this was pretty shoddy for Mark, but, you know, he didn't pick any points yesterday. And what seemed like a kind of expanding gap at the top of the standings has now shrunk to 23 points, I think yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. I think he was 39 points before, and now he's, the, uh, now he's 23 points. And, I mean, it's still a big lead, but it's not, uh, it's not as overwhelming as it has been. I mean, it was a pretty dire Grand Prix for HRC. Uh, Danny Pedrosa qualifying in 20th and then crashing out 20 seconds, um, you know, into the race. And maybe we'll, we'll touch on it again a little bit later when it comes to the future of that team. Um, but Mark, again, stressing yesterday that the the bike is tough to ride. The Honda is still hard to ride. And, you know, that guy is pushing to the limits throughout from, from the very first session until the end of the Grand Prix to make it work. Exactly. Although I think part of HRC struggles, well, a lot of HRC struggles were down to the tyre allocation this weekend. And it was very similar to what we saw in 2017, a year ago. Um, we know that Marquez and Crutchlow in particular, real late breakers, have a tendency to choose the hardest front tire option, especially when the track conditions are really hot because the front tire just overheats. They're making up so much time on the brakes. Um, and the hardest option that they found viable was the asymmetric, which they thought was okay, hard on one side, but too soft on the left side, I think. Yeah. And just found that it was overheating like mad. And we saw last year, I mean, Crutchlow and Pedroza were nowhere before they crashed. And Marquez did a really, really solid ride. I mean, Morbidelli was in the top 10 most of free practice in the race. And then had it was fifteenth. But that, I mean, that's that's also about track conditions because uh, in what I found most most interesting was we were talking to the um, uh, Sky Racing Moto Two uh, uh, PR woman after the race, and she came over and said, "Yeah, yeah, the the, the track condition was terrible. Everybody was was complaining about it." And I think every single rider, uh, with a few, probably Bar Lorenzo, said that you know the, the, they were surprised by how poor the grip was. They'd been expected to do so well. But, I mean, Maverick Vinales was uncontrollable as he usually is after a race. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, they were all expected to be doing forty sevens, and there wasn't a which they were doing last or, year. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And no one did a no one did a single. 47 uh, all throughout the race they were doing you know high 48s low 49s and 50s towards mm. the uh, uh, towards the end of the race people were complaining about a lack of front end grip most people were complaining about a lack of front end grip Gian Zarco was complaining about a lack of rear end, uh, rear end grip so the, the the track condition changed I think also perhaps just because of the weather and there was a private test at Mugello before Jerez I think yeah. or before was it before yeah, it was after Jerez sorry before Le Mans um, and after the French Grand Prix, I was speaking to someone at Ducati and we were talking about Mugello and they shrugged their shoulders and said, well, you know, Marquez was just so much faster than us in the test and they really didn't hold out much hope at all. The Hondas, whenever um, whenever they were testing at Mugello, I think, you know, it was quite cool. Track temperatures were something like 20 degrees lower than they were on Sunday and they were annihilating the rest of the field. So I think um, their struggles at Mugello were you know, we're very much related to the, the high track temperatures, high temperatures all, all weekend and the, the tyre allocation that was there. So it's going to be a few years before we see a Honda win at, uh, at Mugello. <laughs> well, yeah, unless uh, Mother Nature, uh, you know, makes, a, makes an entrance. Yes, yeah. yes, until we get a miserable way, oh, miserable weekend at Mugello. But so far, it's really difficult to have a miserable weekend at Mugello. Especially when most of it is yellow. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
exactly. Um, speaking of yellow, um, that it is interesting. Marquez has finished uh, or has um, had two non-scores from six races, and he's still twenty-three points ahead. Yes. So it shows you the the crazy topsy-turvy nature. I mean, Marquez hasn't even had a consistent start to the year. Yeah, and he's twenty three points ahead. So you can just imagine the kind of maelstrom that's going on behind him. No one's able to, to well, get everything together. You know exactly. I mean, Ducati come to Mugello with a chance to get some points back on Marquez. Marquez helps them by crashing out, and the wrong blooming Ducati wins. Uh, you know, Lorenzo wins. Dovizioso uh, takes away five points. Almost expecting suggested mapping eight to uh, appear on the uh, on the team messages, but that would have been a little bit too egregious, and especially with uh, with Jorge. Uh, a decision about his future having been made. Uh, I can't um, see him taking much um, much notice of it. But, oh yeah, uh, like the way he took so much more <laughs> notice of it in Valencia. Yeah, well, I, I think he'd take it even less, <laughs> even less. Uh, notice, but um, yeah, exactly. The championship has been like that, though. Everyone is making mistakes. I mean, Dovi has two DNFs. Crutchlow. Yeah, Crutch, yeah, uh, uh, Crutchlow, Pedrosa all over the place, uh, Valentino. Yeah, Rossi is second, Vinales is third, and Yamaha has had a rotten start to the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't won a race in 16 Yeah, races. exactly. If you just looked at the championship, you think, oh, no, Yamaha, Yamaha are not doing too badly, but they still, they haven't won a race in 16 races. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Valentino Rossi, third place. I mean, obviously, he was delighted to be on the uh, uh, delighted to be on the podium, and it was it really was an incredible performance to hold off um, the two Suzukis. I mean, the, the both Suzukis were really really strong. Andrea Iannone really looked like the Andrea Iannone that we uh, that he can be. Unfortunately, he can only be it sometimes. Yeah. Um, but Rossi beat Iannone. With his heart, he said he was riding. He wasn't riding the bike anymore. He was riding, uh, you know, just taking a risk to 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 try a win. Um, uh, gets back in the well. He's back in the championship, even though he's a long way behind. Uh, and he made the crowd happy. He made the crowd happy. Yeah, I'd say all he needed to do was to poke his head out of the Yamaha garage, and the crowd <laughs> would have been happy, judging by the reaction uh, from the grandstand on uh, Saturday when we went to watch Trankside. But um, yeah, you could see Rossi was really trying to manage expectations coming into the weekend. He said, obviously, he loves Mugello, great memories, great record there. Yamaha traditionally is it's a Yamaha track, but that test that we spoke about pre- uh, previously was not good for them, and they ran into all those familiar issues of you know traction and lack of rear grip and so on. Um, but yeah, I think we saw yesterday, maybe more than any other race this year, just Rossi making the, the difference. You know, um, before Rossi's been quick this year, but Either Zarco's been there or, or Vinales has been there. I'm thinking about Qatar, you know. Um, Vinales had the pace to be on the podium, but had a bad start. Started from way back in the grid. Could have been with Rossi. But I think yesterday we saw Rossi was just head and shoulders above the other guys um, on Yamaha Machinery. Zarco was nowhere, maybe one of his most anonymous weekends in MotoGP. Um, and Vinales was, uh, yeah, also nowhere, I guess, yeah. you know, for the first part of the race. Um, riding at 50%, he told us, yeah. uh, in the first laps, just because he had no feeling. And I thought it was really interesting listening to Davizioso, speaking of Park Fermi, talking about how critical the front tyre was. Um, he said he saw Rossi in the first, like, two or three laps losing the, the front tyre three times, um, just taking so many risks to stay with that leading group. Yeah. And it was quite impressive how... At one point, it really did look like his race was doomed and he was falling back because Petrucci got past him. I think both the Suzuki's got yeah. past him. And he said the, the front tire came back to him in the end because he, he went for the, uh, uh, he went for the hard front. Um, and eventually that started coming back into its own. And if you look at his, again, the asymmetric front. Yeah, the asymmetric front. Yeah. And if you look at his last lap, it was as fast as Lorenzo was going, um, you know, mid race. Yeah. And that was when he was trying to ward off Iannone behind him. And uh, he was rapidly closing on, on Davizioso in front of him. And it was just, you know, I think I looked at the, the lap charts. He was a full second faster than Vinales on the last lap of the race. Yeah. Uh, and that was when tire wear was critical. Yeah. So I think it was one of Rossi's finest rides in a long time. I don't think poignancy is something you can really level at Valentino Rossi. But, you know, he, he took that pole position, you know, with the fastest lap ever of Mugello on Saturday. And um, he kind of hinted that it might have been one of his last, you know, or one of his last podium shots at, at the event. 
And uh, if you see, I think the Michelle organizers are probably rubbing their hands on Saturday evening, knowing that that's probably put another couple of thousand on the gate or packed yeah, every, out the Everyone was leaving, uh, everyone in the paddock, right, better leave half an hour earlier on, the, <laughs> uh, on Sunday morning. While it's Valentino's house and it's uh, quite staggering to see how one motorcycle rider can move so many people when you come to this event annually, um, how much longer is it going to go on for? You know, that, that yellow inevitably is going to fade away over the next couple of years. Um, so it well, was, it was encouraging. We've got two more years, but if I'm brutally honest on this podcast, I did wonder if Valentino really had the kind of intensity to win another Grand Prix. I think Mark was setting a level, you know, through Austin in that period of his, his run of victories. Um, you know, even with the increased competitiveness of the satellite bikes, um, I think Rossi in the past has had to cope with maybe three to four serious rivals for, for Grand Prix wins. But now I think that's a little bit deeper depending on conditions. And yeah. I think it's the job's that much harder. That's absolutely true. There are two factors there. First of all, Mark Marquez is clearly better than anyone else in the world at the moment. Um, uh, secondly, uh, you have, there is a much deeper field. I mean, there are, it, it used to be, you know, the fabulous four, the fantastic four. There was four riders who could win. Um, now there are any race, six, seven, six. Well, there are, there are maybe five, six riders who can definitely win. Um, apart from, well, if, if Mark Marquez doesn't win, and then uh, three or four more mm. who who have a reasonably a reasonable expectation of the, of things if they going their way. Also on any Sunday, yeah. yeah. Oh, I yeah. mean, it was curious in the Michelin debrief. I mean, they said the the evolution of their product has has fallen in line with the way Mark has evolved the riding style in MotoGP. You know how he's almost laying a whole side of his body on the floor when he's cornering the lean angles it's um you know the effect that he's had you cannot just put down to winds or or, or a color or a look or a vibe you know there's actually yep. a change in in the way that motor gp's raced but you know I, I went to the entrance um yesterday morning uh, sunday morning just to have a, a you know quick chat with some of the fans to work out why people are dressed head to foot like a large daffodil um and and they are sort of you know where there's 46 everywhere and one guy had four four kids around him, decked to you know, head to foot to Rossi Regalia. I said to him, "Why, you know, why, why are your kids dressed up? And why are they waving flags and going bananas walking into the track about Valentino Rossi?" And he said, "Look, it's just it's good marketing. These kids know that Valentino's funny. Um, he's kind of open. He ha he's almost like a, a cartoon character in some respect for them. You know, he says we all know that Marcus is the god." You know, he, he, he's the guy who can race a motorcycle unlike anybody else on that grid. But Valentino is the one that sort of people tend to identify with. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a fictional character. The, Valentino Rossi, the fictional character. Um, it's, it's almost a shame because, it, to an extent, because Valentino Rossi is a really, really interesting person. But he's complex, like all people. There is sun and light, that, the, the sun and the moon on the helmet. I mean, you know, there's good size, there's good size and bad size. Um, there's all sorts of interesting th things going on, but yeah, he's sort of sold as this particular, as a particular image of, um, of Valentino Rossi, where the real Valentino Rossi is a lot more interesting than the uh, than the image actually being sold. Of it. Exactly, yeah, the image being sold being that cuddly, smiley character that yeah. waves at the camera and always has like a little cute soundbite to say in sort of broken English. Um, yeah, and as you say, Dave, I mean, you know, covering the sport, anyone watching the sport will have seen that sort of dark, ruthless side that he has and that, that sort of, uh, that fear of, of retirement. When you have private conversations with, uh, with team managers and senior figures in the sport, they will all... Uh, uh, they will all express the opinion that Valentino Rossi has an awful lot of power and he's not uh, not afraid to use it. He doesn't always. I mean, he, he usually he, he's done a lot of use that that power for good. He's a lot of the safety improvements have been uh, because Rossi has said this has to change. Um, but you know, occasionally he's used it to to uh, to his own uh, uh, yeah for his own good. And also, a fan yesterday in the gate said, you know, we're here for Valentino, and and if Valentino's not in MotoGP, then it's not MotoGP, which is quite kind of a strong thing to say. But it's yeah. uh, maybe there is there is truth in it. Well, th th this is the reason why uh, they've changed the rules. This is why we have such fantastic racing, because Dorna knew. That they were, they were especially through the through the eight hundred years. They knew they were running on empty. They were running on Valentino Rossi's uh, charisma, uh, and then he went to Ducati, and it was such a disaster. They had to 
changed. Something had to change. Something had to change. They had to save the sport for when Valentino Rossi retires. And at least as an entertainment product, there is no better motorsport spe uh, spectacle than, than, than MotoGP. It's so much better than any other, uh, the, any, any other racing series at the moment. Yeah, and evidence of that was when he broke his leg at Mugello in 2010. Yeah. And, you know, the Italian fans were packing up and leaving. As I, was, as I, was, I, I, I was at that race and I was watching um, uh, because they showed they showed Valentino Rossi sort of lying on the ground and then they show him put into the ambulance. And when they were showing him put, being put into the ambulance, uh, the people in the grandstands were getting up and leaving. Literally at that point, okay, right, so there's no point going home. Uh, so yeah, it was, it, it really was that. And um, now, at least once Valentino's gone, the spectacle is still going to be absolutely fantastic. Um, right, but a little bit about uh, uh, Valentino Rossi's teammate, Maverick Vinales. Um, he complained about. Basically, he complained about what everyone else was complaining about. Uh, no feeling at the front. But it was interesting saying why he signs his contract so early. He was saying, Yamaha promised me a bike I can win with, and I hope they could make good on their promise soon. Yeah, it was uh, it was a slightly more upbeat Maverick uh, debrief than Le Mans, where he looked like he was, uh, you know, he needed to have his uh, shoelaces confiscated and wasn't going to be allowed to be uh, in a room alone, had to be accompanied everywhere. Uh, he was slightly more upbeat. Um, yeah, he, I mean, Vinales finds himself in a very strange situation that he's third in the championship and has had a disastrous year and is still within touching distance of the championship lead. He was making a very, um, he did say it three or four times that we're in a position, we can win this championship. It's just down to Yamaha and what they do, how they react to this problem that we've been having for 12 months now. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot is, they're putting a lot on the one-day test that will come after the, the Grand Prix of Catalonia in two weeks' time. They made some comments a few weeks back, maybe at Jerez actually, that uh, they were expecting some kind of electronics update to come then. Um, but, you know, both riders find themselves in a situation when they could be, they could be fighting for the championship, but neither of them feels that in this capacity they can because well Vinales is just scoring sixth sevenths at tracks where he really should be fighting for the win um, and Ross is having to do things you know almost beyond the capabilities of the bike to to be competitive and to be on the podium um, so yeah similar story for Yamaha um, to what we've been saying all year I mean yeah grip issues um, Vinales I think he has problems at the start of the race there's no doubt about that he can't be aggressive um, he said he had a massive moment through Araby out of one yesterday and he didn't know how he was still on the bike. He said usually the Yamaha just gives you no warning you're on the ground. In this instance it gripped and he, he managed to get himself back up on the bike. But um, yeah, it's it's difficult to know what, what's going to happen. Um, yeah. Well, you know, there's rumours as well that Jorge Lorenz is getting back on that Yamaha for the next two years. Why? I mean, has he got some sort of belief that this is a Lorenzo bike and he can cure all the ills? Because you well, know, you there is a there's, there's a very good reason to believe that um, because Joan Zarco is uh, doing exceptionally on the Yamaha and the, and the way he's doing it is by studying Lorenzo's data and trying to ride like Lorenzo. Uh, obviously, it didn't work at um, it didn't work at Mugello, but he just couldn't. It didn't work at Mugello last year either. This is, seems to be a track that Sarko struggles at. But I think there is a good reason to, to, to think that Lorenzo would do well on a Yamaha. And Maverick Pinal, or sorry, Maverick Pinales' crew chief from Unforcada still says that that is the way to ride the bike. As does, you go to speak to anyone in Tectoire, they say that whenever a new rider comes in, Jorge Here's Lorenzo. Jorge's data. Yeah, Look at that. Study, study it. it. Yeah, that's Do right. Ride does. it like that. You'd be all right. Yeah. Yeah. This exactly. is how you get the most from the bike. Yeah. Uh, we should probably move on to silly season um, <laughs> because uh, it was uh, rumor crazy time. Um, everyone, it all went a bit, uh, it all went a wee bit mental. There's, it, for, let's start off with the Lorenzo to Yamaha rumors. Yeah. So there is a chance, a very strong chance that Lorenzo will be on a satellite Yamaha next year. Um, he seems absolutely convinced that he will be on a Yamaha next year. A yep. 2000 factory spec Yamaha. Factory spec Yamaha, yeah, exactly. Um, there appears to be two possibilities of where that satellite Yamaha squad could be. One of them is, it's very, very complicated, but Mark VDS really is in a whole load of trouble, that the MotoGP team. Um, there are severe doubts whether the MotoGP team is even going to exist next year. 
And there's a chance that um, if Mark van der Straten, the team owner, um, gets a bit fed up with everything that's happened in the last couple of weeks, um, he could withdraw his entry. And there is belief that um, Sepang International Circuit, which has the backing of Petronas, um, which is recently pulled out of, uh, of supporting Mercedes and F1, um, they have an interest in, well, starting the team in MotoGP. Um, it's a lot cheaper than F1. It is a lot cheaper than F1. Yeah, I've, I've heard that they were spending around 20 million per year uh, putting that money into the Mercedes team. And the belief is that they could probably fund a very, very, very strong satellite MotoGP team for 12 to 15 million. Um, it's very rare that a sponsor would look at that amount of money as, a, you know, oh, only that amount. Oh, yes, we can do that. Um, so it seems that Camaro Espaleta. I mean, it's very rare that you find a sponsor that is willing to put that sort of money into MotoGP, and I think he's very keen for them to, to come into the sport and front the team. Um, but there are also a lot of, um, well, rumours, um, I guess not rumours, it's reality, that um, the team Angel Nieto, Ducati team, is in a bit of a bad way financially, is having some difficulties. Um, and it seems that Carmelo Espaleta, the CEO of Dorna, is trying to push um, the Spang International Circuit and Petronas to move in and basically sponsor that team. Um, and then that team could switch to uh, to Yamaha Machinery for 2019. So it seems that there's going to be, it seems that Yamaha will have a satellite team next year, but what the, the sort of the, which team they're going to go with? What, are they going to fill the slots vacated by Mark VDS? Well, I had I had a I had a, thir- a third option, and that was possibly that um, uh, Cito Pons has been complaining about uh, uh, Moto Two. He doesn't want to race in Moto Two any longer because Moto Two um, uh, he can't get any sponsors, uh, and it's costing him too much money. So uh, it's possible he could move. Up. I mean, the most likely option for Mark VDS is that they will sell their grid slots, um, and uh, if they can sell their grid slots, then because actually it's Van der Straten who owns those grid slots. Isn't there a teams agreement, David, where uh, any new team has to? Occupy well has to essentially invest in a present team. Uh, yes, but if the present team wants to wants to come up, they they either have to invest in a present team, or uh, they the, the, that team can choose to sell their grid slots. So they they re- they retain ownership of those grid slots until twenty twenty one, which is when the current uh, contracts run out. But if they want to sell the if they want to sell it, they can sell. They're they're free to sell those grid slots to someone else. Um, uh, if uh, you know, obviously they have to uh, agree a, uh, a agree a price, uh, or rather, the, the team has to be approved by Dorna and Erta. You can't, you know, couldn't be uh, if Brad Pitt decides to um, set up a team or something, then he couldn't just like come and say, "I want to, put, I want to come in." Although maybe if it was Brad Pitt, they might let him uh, come in because let's face it, it would be a fantastic boost for the sport. But um, yeah, I mean, just any old, they're not going to let any old, uh, any old idiot come in uh, just because he has a lot of money and wants to spend it. Purely as well because he won the race. Just to spin that back to the beginning, Jorge Lorenzo has obviously been given a guarantee or a a pre-contract, a letter of intent, some kind of assurance that, you know, he's going to be on a Yamaha, a factory spec Yamaha in a good team. Well, the things which are in place are, uh, or we are almost certain of, is a factory Yamaha for Lorenzo, uh, Lorenzo, and uh, uh, Patronus Money and the Sepang International Circuit Team organisation. That Those are all the ingredients of a successful team. Uh, the only thing that's missing is the logistical side of you know the, the team where they come and all the rest of it. So it, it seems to um, uh, it, it seems to me that I mean I spoke to uh, Gino Borsoi at the end of um, after the race on Sunday. And he's the ma- manager of the of the Angel Nieto team, and he was saying, yeah, I mean you know it's not our decision. There's lots of uh, discussions going on. Uh, they still have they have sort of a verbal agreement with Ducati for next year, um, but if Sapan came in, obviously. They would be they would be interesting. So this will get sorted out. Uh, uh, Lorenzo was saying he'll make an announcement about his future before Barcelona. I'm not sure that the situation will be sorted out before Barcelona, but it's going to be sorted out soon. But plans are obviously advanced enough for people to start talking about who his potential teammate would be, and the most natural fit from from gossip seemed to be that the Mar- um, Franco Morbidelli. You know, if if Mark VDS does sort of close that option to him, um, being in the VR46 Academy, um, you know, having that that Yamaha next to Jorge Lorenzo would be a be a natural fit. Yeah, I mean, it's the obvious. He's the obvious choice. It is the obvious choice. Although, if the Sepang International Circuit and Petronas are involved, you would 
possibly think that Hafi Siren would be in some way involved, and that was one of the spec, you know, one of the rumours that were thrown around early on. But we spoke to uh, Raslan Azari, who is the, I think, one of the well, the CEO of the Spain International yeah, he's Circuit, the director of the circuit, I think. yeah. And he was saying, I think, you know, Hafiz is more or less penciled in for that second seat at the uh, Tactua KTM for next year, alongside Miguel Oliveira. Um, he thinks that having Hafiz in a in a well-sorted team is kind of the utmost importance, you know, maybe coming into a new setup, which is still... Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you, swapping to a new team, new technicians, all the rest of it, continuity uh, with um, uh, with your technicians is so incredibly, you know, with your engineers and with your crew chief and all the rest of it, it's such an important part of racing. Yeah, but I think whatever happens, I mean, it's... Um, if they do start up, you know, if they do buy Mark VDS's grid slots and start up their own, their own squad, um, I mean, that is an awful lot to sort of take on. Um, I was speaking to someone that is involved in this Pang International Circuit's um, Moto3 squad uh, during the weekend, and they were saying that, I mean, there's a big difference from running two Moto2 bikes and a Moto2 machine to running uh, Jorge Lorenzo and a factory Yamaha in MotoGP with expectations from the rider and certain technicians and crew of winning, yeah, and sponsors of winning races in MotoGP. Um, that is a lot to take on, no matter how big your budget is. Yeah, um, exactly. It's not an issue that can be solved with budget. It needs the experience, and the uh, uh, it, it it needs the experience. It needs uh, just the details. MotoGP right now, that level of racing, it's all about everything. Is the details, the final little details of preparation, and that could be just down to you know making sure you have all the right equipment in the right place at the right time, uh, and having a strong logistics manager. And you don't think of you know having a having a really efficient logistics manager as being a, a, a key to winning, but it can be the, it can make the difference. If people are running around looking for stuff because they don't know where the parts are. Then it can just simply mm. uh, it just creates it creates more chaos. And all of these little small things, there's nothing can replace experience I think exactly especially if sorry Adam um, your rider is Jorge Lorenzo who has spent nine years in a factory Yamaha squad and then two years in a factory Ducati squad two of the best teams in the entire planet yeah what do you think um, well maybe some of the other headlines from the weekend I mean David you sort of intimated in that growling voice that there were quite a bit of uh, you know transfer kind of gossip going on but I mean Friday Joan Mir was pushed to even have a debrief for the press which he doesn't usually do um, explaining the situation he's got three deals on the table it would seem riders like yeah uh, but one of them is signed I mean of course he's got three deals he's probably got lots of offers but um, uh, they, uh, he's only signed one of them um, uh, he's going to be on a Suzuki next year as, uh, as uh, Alex Rins' teammate uh, the announcement is going to come before Barcelona Um uh, it, it's one of those sort of open secrets where we have to maintain the fiction that um, uh, he's still got the paddock. It, it seems that his manager uh, spoke to the press openly. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Spoke to the press openly in the hope of uh, driving up the price the, of the contract for, uh, for for Suzuki. So probably squeezed a few, you know, a little, a few more bits and bobs out of the uh, out of the contract. Um, I mean, if you're to believe rumours. Um, for a guy that's had, well, that will have had one year in Model 2. Yeah. Uh, sounds like he is, uh, his manager has done an absolutely sensational job of yeah. uh, securing his rider at an excellent salary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but uh, I can't, was it was it Uni or someone else? Someone, else, someone was telling me that, uh, you know, all of the things that Joan Mir was doing throughout um, uh, throughout Moto 3 and then Moto 2, it was basically the same sort of things that Mark Marcus was doing when he was in the junior classes. He has that, um, uh, he has that sort of, Level a level of, of of excellence, that maturity that makes the difference between you know success or or, or being good and being great. So I did an interview with him on Friday, and it just seems um, Thursday even, and it seemed like excessive bike time is one of his kind of you know his his attributes. I mean, he's always riding, he's always training, but then it kind of bit him in the ass a little bit on Sunday because he's got he admitted he has tendonitis in his left arm, yeah, um, running pretty much from his bicep the all the way down to his lower arm. Rabatitis. <laughs> <laughs> Because but, yeah, uh, I mean, they're, they're definitely when he moves up to MotoGP, that's something he'll have to change. Mm -hmm. He'll have to he'll have to start getting off that. David, what, what about yeah? <laughs> what about some of the the other question marks? I mean, it's it, I mean, things are not looking too rosy. I mean, Brad Bradley Smith was very honest, saying yeah, you know, the age of twenty eight, he could possibly call time on his racing career. 
Um, it would be an amazing test rider, I think, for anybody. And I mean, he's, he's going to make one of those. He's going to make an absolutely top flight uh, pundit. Uh, commentator pundit. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, Scott Redding had another terrible Grand Prix. It's looking like the doors closed to him for Aprilia, um, and Andreini had only been linked heavily with that seat. Um, and even then, in, back to HRC with Danny Pedrosa. I mean, does does he keep that? Does he keep that saddle for another year or two? Purely on the fact that they have no other viable options. Yeah, I mean, it is it is looking increasingly that way. Um, uh, it, I've been told since the beginning of the year that that Alberto Puig wants to get rid of uh, of Danny Pedrosa. But the trouble is, every time they try and sign a rider to replace him, they can't. Uh, they get turned down. Um, or they it takes, or you know, they they, they take another option. Yeah, they, they they miss out. So, and to be perfectly honest, Danny Pedrosa is just a still, despite his his struggles, he's still incredibly quick, and he's still one of the best options for that uh, for that ride. I mean, unless you could get a Pecco Bagnaia, which they didn't, or a right. Juan Mir, which they didn't. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, Pedrosa had a <sighs> rotten weekend at Mugello, like just terrible. But I was thinking, or I was looking back through his results. Um, after Jerez and you think if things had gone his way he didn't have that crash in Argentina he could have finished in the podium there then he wouldn't have been injured in Texas and then he could have finished in the podium there probably could have run at Jerez I mean he could have come away from the Spanish Grand Prix leading the championship and then you know you would say his, his future would have been resolved by now um, but yeah there were all sorts of rumours uh, that um, Pooch had gone to Jack Miller on Sunday. Um, Which Jack Miller de- 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 denied on yeah, Sunday. Sure, exactly. They were willing to pay Jacadi a million euros to get Miller out of his con- the second year of his contract uh, to come and partner Marquez. Uh, I was approached by the Spanish journalist on Sunday night uh, who wrote the story and was told in no uncertain terms that I should not be saying there were rumours. They were indeed facts. <laughs> um, but, uh, yep, yeah, so yeah, it seems that, you know, Pooch seems to have targeted uh, Zarco, that didn't work. Seems to have targeted Mir, that didn't work. Uh, Jonathan Ray was another name that was linked with the Honda, uh, with the Repsol Honda seat, but I think Honda were saying that basically, you know, Ray essentially, you know... Offered his services. Ta- yeah, talent aside, talent aside, you know, doesn't have experience of, of MotoGP. Yeah, you know? and he's 31. And he's 31, you know, so if they were going to get rid of, of Pedrosa, it would have to be for a young talent that they would want to nurture. Um so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of other options. I mean, you were saying Morbidelli this morning, but I, I think they're going to stay with Pedroza. Yeah, what, and Morbidelli what, makes sense on a Yamaha. And from what I've heard, um, yeah, Pooj wants to change it up, but the Japanese, sort of Japanese management, Kuwada-san, are a little more conservative, think that Pedroza's been an excellent servant. They value his loyalty through the years. Repsol, obviously, or have a big say yeah. in these kind of things, and Pedroza's Spanish. Um, you know, he's still liked them in those circles. So, I think... I think he's going to sign. Yeah, maybe they'll sign him for just one year and search for another replacement for, for 2020. But yeah. Could anybody come in from Superbike? I mean, Michael van der Mark, still young enough. He could take a satellite Yamaha. Mm, yeah. uh, unfortunately, um, the MotoGP paddock doesn't take Super World Superbike uh, very seriously. Uh, and it's got nothing to do with the level of competition. In my, uh, because, I mean, you know, Chas Davies is outstanding rider Jonathan Ray outstanding rider Michael Vandermark seems to have made a step in his riding um, yeah. Alex Lowe's great rider but uh, they just don't get taken seriously because it's World Superbikes and it doesn't really count yeah there is a bit of a snobbery in yeah. uh, MotoGP circles yeah, you know, I mean, the, where they just look within really yeah and also it's because uh, people in MotoGP have come up through the system and so um, there are lots and lots of people that the managers and, and technicians can talk you know the engineers can talk to all the, all the crew chiefs can talk to each other about because they will know the team that they were with in the Spanish championship or whatever and so there's lots and lots of data on those riders and well superbike riders have often come up through different uh, but can well can you get talented riders uh, through uh, the through the World Superbike Championship, well, the fact that Franco Morbidelli, um, who was a Superstock 600 rider, the fact that um, the, the Danilo Petrucci, who was a Superstock super super 1000, I can't yeah, remember. Thousand. Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, the fact that these two riders can't are there. those one races. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, ben Spees. Yeah, last American winner. Yeah. In MotoGP. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I have absolutely no doubt that Jonathan Ray, Chaz Davies, maybe Michael van der Mark could cut it in MotoGP, you know, especially Ray and Davies, you know, what they've yeah. done the last couple of years. But I think it's it's just a shame that, that they are overlooked, really. Yeah. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Right, well, we need to finish this off because, uh, uh, Adam, you need to hoon up the motorway to Bologna um, to catch a flight. Uh, winners and losers. Uh, Neil, your winners for the weekend. Um, goodness me, you put me on the spot, David. Um, I... How about we start with Adam? <laughs> <laughs> Throw me on the spot instead. Well, I'll start if you like. Right, I'll start uh, because I'm going to take the easy shot. I mean, the, the big winner is obviously Jorge Lorenzo. He saves his reputation. He wins a race on a Ducati, something which Valentino Rossi couldn't do, despite the fact that the, the, the two situations are completely incomparable. The bike's totally different, all the rest of it. Doesn't matter. It'll say in the record books that uh, Jorge Lorenzo won on the uh, won on a Ducati. It's still a red bike. Exactly. Exactly. The colour's the same. Um uh, so yeah, I mean, to me, he's also he salvages his reputation. The, the way that he was being, the, the things that he was saying afterwards, it all made it clear. All these people, there you are know, people say I lie, you know, I make excuses, I never make excuses, I only tell the truth. He was saying all of these uh, things that basically he salvaged his reputation, or he feels he certainly feels he salvaged his reputation, and that win, he that was just class there was, was yeah there was no luck about it there wasn't like a wet race or it wasn't a race where he inherited the lead after yep. a couple of guys crashed out ahead he won the italian grand prix yeah. and dominated start to finish it. start yeah. to finish and no one else could keep up with him so yeah he's he's uh, uh he's my winner uh he's no well i mean you know it's hard to look beyond lorenzo but just for sheer contrarian sake i'll go with uh, marco bezecchi uh moto three championship leader um who i think has just been outstanding this season um came into this 2018 as I thought a dark horse, a guy that was really impressive in testing, always inside the top seven, I think. Um, I thought, yeah, this guy's going to be on the podium a couple of times, maybe even a race winner. Um, and I think what we've seen in the last two races is Bezeki showing that he can actually fight for this championship the entire way. And I spoke to several people in Moto3, uh, or involved in Moto3 uh, teams, uh, factories, through the weekend, and they said that this kid is genuinely very, very impressive indeed. Yeah, yeah I'm really um, excited about Bezeki. Yeah, I think he's a, he's a real talent, and, and, and one that has essentially come out of nowhere. Um, or come from nowhere. Uh, his race again on Sunday was outstanding. You could see that, uh, I mean, okay, that KTM, uh, they had some upgraded parts in Le Mans, new airbox, new exhaust. Um, so it had a great top speed advantage, but you could see through the, the twisty bits, basically from turn one to the last turn to Buccini, uh, the Hondas of Dijan Antonio and Martin were just so much stronger, could carry in much uh, wider, more sweeping lines, much more corner speed. And Bezeki was losing half a second each time and was riding you know out of his skin just to stay with him so he could slipstream them back down the straight and I think the fact that he even managed to beat one of the Hondas and come with him what one hundredth of a second of winning well, his own Grand Prix I thought was yeah. quite impressive yeah after the race I spoke to Peter Baum who was, uh, was Danny Kent's crew chief when uh, Danny won the, uh, uh, the Moto3 World Championship and he said basically uh, Bezeki lost that race in uh, turn one at the, the, the start of the last uh, uh, the start of the last lap because he outbraked himself and he hadn't outbraked himself he would have been in front of uh, in front of the two Hondas as they went around the, that track yeah, that would have slowed the Hondas up a little bit and he would have been close enough to actually do them both um, uh, c coming out of that final corner so yeah but um, that's uh, I have a lot of time for Bezeki he's going to be a big uh, the next big thing and again Mahindra Mahindra of their their talent selection was amazing unfortunately their bike was not <laughs> okay my winners uh, haven't had time to think about it are three pronged I think the other classes because I think in Moto2 and Moto3 both at Sean and Moto2 yeah, the GP Moto2 the race was outstanding yeah. and for that Miguel Oliveira who you know rode brilliantly for the first uh, win <laughs> worst win for him Bellissima. this year <laughs> and um, Jorge Martin who was like a hair breadth away from being a hair killer yeah. so uh, you know that was that was also something you don't see every weekend can I say my, my loser of the weekend is firmly Pedrosa um, I think absolutely torrid I mean in a, in a, at a time when he needed a Grand Prix to a little bit like state his case and say look I'm good for another year guys how, how many years has he been a Repsol Honda rider, 2006? 13th year, yeah, right. Uh, I mean, if he gets another chance on that, especially after this weekend where some, you know, some cold, you know, in the cold light of day, some of the facts over what happened at the weekend are not going to look good for him. I, I, it'd be, it will be quite staggering. I mean, I just think some people like maybe Alberto Puglia or someone else in HRC will think we've got to have a punt on someone else. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. I mean, he had a dismal weekend. A lot of people had dismal weekends, but yeah, definitely... Um, uh, uh, the pressure that Pedrosa is under, that was, it's, uh, yeah, he really needed a much better weekend than he had. And he, it, it, 
I think the story of Danny Pedrosa's career is that he just he could never get a break. You know, the luck never really broke in his way. Lots of other things broke, but not uh, uh, <laughs> his but, but not his luck. Yeah, exactly. He's collarbone and every other bone in his body, more or less. Uh, but um, yeah, he just couldn't get to, couldn't get uh, lucky. Uh, Your yeah, loser? Uh, my loser, I'm going to say Aprilia. Uh, awful weekend for them at their home race. Uh, the RSGP 18, by all accounts, you know, has better handling than what they had before. Uh, updated engine has higher top speeds. Uh, Alicia Spargo was coming here thinking that a top six could be possible, maybe even the top 10. Had a crash in FP4. Um, had to use a second bike for qualifying one. Second bike, you know, was quite different and had a terrible feeling. Qualified 21st, I think, which is just a nightmare. And then was fighting up towards the, well, I think he was uh, challenging Paul Spargo on the, uh, for 11th or 12th in the race. Uh, was repeatedly outgunned on the straight by the KTM um, and had to pull in with uh, rear tyre issues towards the end and you know Scott Redden crashed out early on it's just been it's you know this is more this is not just related to Magello but it's 2018 as well it's been an awful season so far for Pretty and they re- really showed so much promise last year yeah. uh, they showed of- flashes but that's all it's sure. only a, it's never more than a flash yeah and they just can't get any sort of rhythm uh, consistency going uh, reliability issues seem to continue at a very vast and worrying rate and um, you know I think the fact that they were able to attract Ian Oney, uh, it seems that Ian Oney is going to be there next yeah. year, I mean that's a, that's a pretty good rider lineup you'd have to say for Aprilia and I mean Ian Oney must be looking at that thinking it's a bit of a worry yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's almost as if he's he's well, one of the big losers this weekend because he proves that he's really, really fast, and uh, and yet there he is. He's going to be on a uh, on a pretty next year. For me, I think it's oh, we've got we've got an engine going. Um, uh, for me, the, the big loser is, has got to be Joan Zarco. He's clearly competitive. He's clearly you know one of the best riders on the grid. Um, but Magello, he just can't do anything. I, I think we get <laughs> yes. Cue the end of the show as the gardener in the garden next door starts up his uh, his. his but then it's a fitting end to the show. This is exactly what it's like being on the grandstands in in uh, in Mugello. So, thank you very much, Neil. Thank you very much, uh, Adam. Thank um, you, David. Uh, Thanks, David. Yeah, make sure everyone uh, reads uh, on track off road because it's such an outstanding publication. And uh, we shall see you next show. Hi there, friend. Oh, God, I've got I've got nail in my ear. Oh, not for the first time this weekend. <laughs>